I'm Tim, and I'm joined in the virtual pub by my drinking buddy, Ileri. What are you drinking and thinking about today? Hello. I am drinking sake. Mmm. And I'm thinking about sake. That is the (laughs) shortest introduction to this you've ever done. (laughs) I think the last one I edited, I think I had to cut it down from about three minutes. Uh, (laughs) Well done, you. Well done. (laughs) I think it's normally because I have not organised enough to get a drink that links with what we're talking about. And I have to have like a really tenuous link to it. But luckily my mum bought me some for Christmas, so I had some. (laughs) Oh, excellent. Well, I have also got sake. (laughs) It felt like there could be no other option to drink for this. You know, it's not like we can go on a tangent with this one. You just, you have to drink it. Yes. I like it. Uh, Do you like it? Mm. I do. I've got, uh, mine is um, infused with plum. Mine's been aged, aged plums I've got in my mouth (laughs) right now. How's the mouth feel? Plummy and aged. (laughs) (laughs) I've got a yuzu, uh, a yuzu sake. Oh, nice. So we both went for flavoured mm. ones, but very traditional flavouring, Japan, both plum and yuzu. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Should we get, should we get stuck into it? Should we learn yeah. some stuff about sake? Okay. Um, first of all, let's just both kind of point out that we're going to be doing very anglicised versions of pronunciations. Um, yes. But get over it. I didn't have time to learn Japanese in two weeks, so you're just gonna have to deal with it. Okay. Um, well, um, a, a par- apparently, a lot of people even say sake wrong. What sake? Uh, um, sake. A lot of people say. Uh, yeah. I found during my research that uh, on the lot of them, I think it was mainly the American blogs. They were like, "It's pronounced sake, not sake." Yeah. Fair enough. I'm, I mean, I'm sure even in that there's some nuance that we're not getting, but never mind. Um, so, <laughs> sake is it's known as rice wine generally, but it is more similar to beer than wine because it's made from starches rather than fruit sugars. Um, it's usually higher in alcohol content than beer and wine, though, and ferments at around 18 to 20 but then it usually gets diluted down to about 15. Mine is 14, actually, so it's hitting right about there. Um, unlike beer, which converts its starches to sugars and then converts sugars to alcohol in two steps, with sake, this all happens in one stage. And this is mostly because of how they use koji moulds. So koji is a fungus which secretes the enzyme amylase and amylase turns um, starch into glucose. So it turns the rice starch into glucose. And in beer, what you would do is malt the barley into maltose first. But um, this happens at the same time. It happens at the same time as the yeast is converting glucose into alcohol. So you've got 
koji making starch into glucose as the yeast is instantly taking that glucose and turning it into alcohol. Koji mold's not just used for that, you also get it in soy sauce and miso paste, so it's a much used, very safe, very healthy uh, fungus. Mm -hmm. uh, because it's all done in one vat together, it yields um, that higher alcohol. You lose less of that alcohol. And the leftover yeast, or lees as you call it, is pressed out, and then the sake is filtered or pasteurized. And that whole process takes two or three months. And then it's usually matured a little bit between nine and 12 months. But they don't mature in the way that they have really, you know, vintages or really long maturation periods. Usually. That said, mine is 18 months. But that's because of the uh, plum infusion. Uh, traditionally, sake is brewed only in the winter. Of course, now it can be brewed, you know, year round, any time, but there is still a seasonality that's associated with sake, particularly if you've gone to some of the more artisanal breweries. And the kind of most visible remaining symbol of that seasonality is a globe of cedar leaves that gets traditionally hung outside the brewery when a new sake is brewed, which they call a sugitama. And when they hang it up at first, the leaves are green, and then over time they go brown, and that's supposed to reflect the maturation of the sake, and that's why they do it. They still um, do it or hang it outside of um, uh, restaurants or bars that serve it as well to signify that. The New Year's sake then is called Shinshu, and when it's uh, initially released in late winter or early spring, they'll have a celebration. Um, and that's known as Kura Biraki, which just means warehouse opening. <laughs> they always sound so fancy until you translate them literally. And like, oh. um, so traditionally, sake was um, transported then at the, the end of winter or in spring when it was still cool. Because sake does not cope well with summer heat, with sunshine and all that sort of stuff. So I hid mine away very carefully in the fridge. Um, and then they will have, for those that have been aged a bit more, they can have a secondary transport in autumn. So in Japanese, the the character of sake, because you know that obviously the alphabet's different, they have characters for things. So the character sake can actually refer to any alcoholic drink. It's not just what we think it is. Um, the beverage that we call sake is usually termed Nihonshu, which specifically means Japanese alcoholic drink in Japan. Um, but under the Japanese liquor laws, they label it as seishu, which means clear wine. But they don't use that in conversation. So that's kind of like the written form of seishu. In conversation, they would say nihonshu, Japanese alcoholic drink, and any alcoholic drink would be sake. So there's where we are with uh, some of the introductions. The history, I'm not going to go too much into this time. Mm -hmm. Um I'll tell you for why. So there are references that do go as far back as 3rd century, although we're not quite sure like how similar to uh, modern sake that is. We, the earliest mention of the modern recipes that we would encounter now are from the 16th century. The reason I'm not going to go into it too much is because a lot of its history is actually very similar to what we did in the vodka episode which is that it goes in and out of government control over the centuries because they use it as a big source of taxable income. 
So I just thought going through that history would be far too similar. But what I will say is that actually during the war with Russia in the in the Russo-Japanese War in 1904 and 05, very similar thing happened to what happened in Russia that, that sparked the Russian Revolution, is that the government banned home brewing of sake, which had been a big <laughs> tradition before that. Um, at the time, sake was 30% of Japan's tax revenue. And obviously, home-brewed sake is tax-free, so their logic was obviously they ban it in the home, then um, sales would increase, they would get more tax revenue to be collected at this time with the um, Russo-Japanese War, which, if you remember, is exactly what was happening in Russia with vodka. Um, so that kind of pretty much put an end to home-brewed sake. Um, and the law is still in effect today. Um, even though sake sales are now only 2% of government income, but they haven't brought yeah. that back, which I think is a shame and hopefully will change soon because we've seen Actually, what that does I'm, for alcohol industries. I'm going to touch upon that later, funny Ooh. enough. Touch it. Uh, so at this time, um, at this very time when the uh, the war is going on, the government opened the Sake Brewing Research Institute in 1904, right at the start of the war. And then in 1907, they have their first government-run sake tasting competition. So that's when they start to bring in like mandated ways of doing it. So specific yeast strains for particular flavours. Um, and they also... The steel tanks that they were brewing in, they start to coat them in enamel inside. So the government says that it makes it easier to clean, it's longer lasting, and it doesn't have any bacterial problems. I mean, as we remember from barrel episodes, obviously the bacteria that you get in woods can be responsible for some really interesting flavours, like you know we found with um, sours and all this sort of stuff. But they didn't want that because they just see that as unhygienic. Um, so that's kind of one thing I think is that is that this is unhygienic, but the other is that um, they can get more tax money from it because when you use wooden barrels, an amount of the alcohol evaporates. It's about three percent of your production goes to evaporation, whereas in enamel tanks it doesn't. So when you kind of add that up over the tax income, it, it becomes quite significant. So that's another reason why they would have done it as well. But it does mean that barrel-aged sake is hard to come by because it's still generally considered uh, a no-go. And then, once we hit World War II, um, we've got rice shortages. Again, quite similar to the um, the Russian story that we did about you know them having food shortages and stuff as they went into that. But um, they um, were kind of discouraged from using rice for brewing because obviously people needed to eat it. Um, but even like we've got references as early as the 17th century that found that you uh, some of the recipes were adding alcohol to the sake before they press it and it extracts some of the aromas and the flavors from the rice solids so is at this time that they went okay rather than it just being this pure alcohol that's come from rice in the vat actually we can add some alcohol in and extract some flavors and, and raise that volume so it was at the time in the Second World War that they start adding pure alcohol, they start adding glucose, um, and it can increase the, the yield as much as four times. So you can understand why they're doing it. Um, mm -hmm. But that has persisted still. The majority, 75% of uh, the sake in Japan is still made using that technique, um, as we might see a bit more with uh, the way they name their sakes later. 
So we're post-World War II, we're in the 1960s. This is really sort of the decline in mass sake consumption um, because at that point, beer becomes the most popular drink. Um, and there are still about 1,800 breweries in Japan, which is not insignificant, but is way down on what it was historically when it was the thing that everyone was drinking. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about rice polishing. Have you ever polished your rice? Um, it depends who's asking, really. Mm, my sentiment exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, there's um, a, as I say, you can make it from any rice. If you make it from table rice, which is you know the kind you would eat, it's more palatable, it does produce a lower-end sake, but most of the sake is made from that. If you want a higher end, you have to go specifically for sake rice. That rice is larger, it's stronger, it's lower in protein, um, uh, but and you wouldn't necessarily eat it, but it does make good sake. And what they do with that is they polish it, not to make it shiny, um, <laughs> to take away the outer layers, to get at that core of the rice grain, which is where all the starch is, because the outer layers of the grain have um, higher concentration of fats and vitamins and proteins. So while that bit is good for us, it's not so good for making uh, the sake. And that's because those things could produce off flavors um, and make the sake you know, rougher. Again, it's something that, you know, if you were brewing beer or whatever, you sometimes like to play with those off flavors, but not in this world. Um, so they polish off the outer layers, they mill it away in this polishing process, um, and that process is called shinpaku. And it usually takes two or three days to polish the rice down to um, about half its original size. But fear not, uh, that uh, rice powder that's polished off does not go to waste. It's a byproduct that is used. They use it to make rice crackers or Japanese sweets or other food stuff as well. So it's not as wasteful a process as it might first appear. Um, this gives rise to the, the two sort of main types of sake. So as I say, there's the, the sort of ordinary table one, futsushu. And then if they've been through this polishing process and it's higher end, that's the tokute meishoshu. Um, and within that, there are degrees um, that are affected by how much the rice has been polished and also whether there's any kind of percentage of brewer's alcohol being added or you know any other additives. So generally what you're looking for, if you want what is considered to be the top quality uh, one after the polishing process, you're looking for the word junmai. Junmai is a term used for sake that's been made of pure rice wine without any additional alcohol. So the very top level is junmai daiginjo shu. Oh, I was doing so well. That's um, pure rice, <laughs> very special brew. So it's made with koji rice and it's been polished down to less than half of its original size. And it uses at least 15% koji rice. And then as you go down the levels, you arrive at the bottom. doesn't mean it's bad, it's still good, but this is the bottom version. Uh, Honjo Soshu, which just means genuine brew. And that would be um, still at least 15% koji rice, which had been polished down to 70% of its original size. So you still got more of that um, outer shell than the center starch. And it's also had distilled alcohol added to it. So the one I've got, for example, is a Ginjo 
Ginjo Umeshu. Ginjo means it's 60%. Um, so that mine's in the middle of those. Um, mm-hmm. And it doesn't have Junmai, which means it's had distilled um, alcohol added to it. Ume is plum. And uh, it's called Shira, Shira Ume Ginjo Umeshu. So Shira Ume is the place where it came from. It's like the brewer. So actually, you can understand a lot by looking at sake labels. They're very communicative. So I can understand mm-hmm. like how much the rice has been polished, whether anything's been added to it, where it comes from, any additional flavors. It's I really enjoy that part of uh, <laughs> learning about how to sort of read sake labels. Uh, there's a couple more terms I'm going to throw at you before I hand over. One okay. is, as I sort of said about complex flavors and off flavors and stuff when for example you're tasting wine what you really want is a a long lasting finish so it takes you on this journey with a good quality wine but in the world of sake what you're looking for is a short clean finish and that's a demonstration of quality because it's quite hard to do so the word for that is kire kire is the japanese word for clean crisp uh, cleansing finish so when you have a kire sake and you drink it with food it's supposed to act like a palate cleanser, like a sorbet. It removes the flavors and it refreshes the palate. So you're not sort of flavor matching to contrast and compare. You're using it as a palate cleanser. And if you are, as I say, it's quite hard to do that. If you are experienced, you've been experienced Kuramoto. Kuramoto is essentially the sake brewery owner in Japanese. And they sort of represent the philosophy and the technique um uh, of of that sake style but whereas they are the owner of the business they would then go and hire a toji seasonally um who is the master brewer so they would manage the brewing process traditionally however with a lot of the modern uh sakis you find that they are kuramoto toji so they are both the business owners and also the master brewers um, and that's kind of the direction it's going in at the moment so there we go. I battled my way through lots of mangled Japanese words, and uh, now I need to actually drink some of it and uh, give give myself a break. Over to you. <laughs> you did. You did very very well. Very well indeed. I'm gonna absolutely butcher it. <laughs> um, so unsurprisingly, I'm gonna talk about drinking sake, the drinking part. Yes, please. <laughs> um, so. Sake can be served uh, in a kind of number of ways to do with temperature. Uh, you can have it warm, you can have it chilled, you can have it room temperature. Um, there's no kind of hard and fast way of doing it. Uh, a lot of the kind of research I did, they all kind of start by politely saying, drink it how you want. <laughs> if you prefer it this way, drink it that way. Um but each bottle is a bit different when it comes to temperature um, and many of the ones that you buy um, will list a kind of suggested serve temperature on them as well. But generally speaking, um, so as you mentioned earlier about the polishing of the rice, it gives it that percentage grade. Uh, so sake made with a lower percentage grade should be served at a cooler temperature. Uh, that means that they're really subtle, subtle nuances that you don't lose them. Whereas the higher percentage ones, roughly about 75%, uh, they're better served warm. So you can hide any imperfections. Mm. 
Um, so much like wine, the flavours you can get from sake will change with the temperature. Uh, lighter flavours become more apparent the colder it gets. Um, and the, as I've mentioned, the bold flavours reclaim the drink as it warms to room temperature and beyond. Um, and then just kind of with regards to occasion as well, as you'd expect, if it's a really hot day, people will prefer chilled one. Whereas if it's a bit cold, they'll warm it up. Um, so how to warm it? Um, it's kind of like a big bain-marie, essentially. Um, first of all, you've got to bring the sake to um, room temperature. So don't take it out of the fridge and start warming it. You just take the sake out, let it get to room temperature. Then, only when it's at room temperature, you can bring a pan of water to a boil, turn it off, and then you pour your sake into your large vessel, which can be sat in that saucepan of water and then it's about your kind of own preference then they just recommend that you try small sips of the sake to see if it's at the temperature that you want um and with regards to the vessel i mean if you think about sake when you've seen it in films or you've seen it in restaurants the way that it's served it's always that kind of like quite nice fancy ceramic kind of water jug with the smaller cups um i think that's because of the way in which it is warmed up a lot of um a lot of these sake drinking sets are sold in that way out of ceramic because you can put that large jug into your boiling or not boiling pan of water and warm it up and then take it out when you're ready and serve um with regards to those vessels so traditionally it's served out of porcelain or ceramic cups um because sake usually has uh, an ABV higher than 14%, uh, you normally pour it kind of just less than what you'd pour for a, a glass of wine. Uh, it's recommended that a glass of sake should be around 6 ounces, but consumed over very small cupfuls. Um, with regards to like the designs or the materials used for these drinking vessels there's a lot of kind of nods to certain traditions there um so some of them are made of frosted glass um that's to slightly obscure the sake so when it's getting close to empty you're still focused on the conversation of those around you instead of topping up your glass and refilling and also um they come with quite heavy bottoms. I mean, they're already... <laughs> Don't we all these days? I mean, that's the first thing I thought when I read that was a heavy bottom, eh? <laughs> um, but they're my, deliberately I'm looking make, at my um, sofa right now and it has a dent in it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it still misses me. <laughs> um, so the bottoms of the, of the cups are deliberately made heavy and that's to encourage slow, thoughtful drinking. And also, we just enjoy the weight of a heavy glass in our hand. Um, pouring sake also has its own traditions. So, um, the tradition is that you encourage others to pour for... Well, you pour for others, but then others must pour for you. So, um, the typically small cups that you use to drink sake, um, that's another reason that it's done in particular because they want lots of people to pour lots of time it's a it's a very very communal kind of ceremony drinking sake together um it's not the kind of drink that you have at home 
um, like we are right now. <laughs> it's more of a communal thing. So um, it's again done in little cups. So there's lots of reason to, to pour and make conversation. Um, when someone is pouring for you, it's polite to lift your cup and tilt it towards them slightly. And the same is done when you want a refill, which I think is a bit passive aggressive myself. If somebody just starts tilting their cup at me, like, come on. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny when you discover those cultural differences, isn't it? Because I would sort of read it in a similar way. I always find it more awkward to pour for someone who's holding a glass. I prefer them to put it down on the table so I know what I'm dealing with. Yeah. Have you ever like poured a drink for someone holding a cup and then they just sort of move it away while you're doing it? <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, I have. <laughs> yeah. I'd rather they just put it down and walked away. <laughs> um. That's my like, that's my approach to any collaborative effort, though. In fairness, <laughs> could you not? Could you just put it down and walk away? I'll do it. <laughs> but that's the thing. I think a lot of these kind of little nuances and traditions are. It's based around the whole community thing and the the gathering. It's it's some it's it's another way of kind of breaking the ice at a dinner party um, when somebody pours for you. Um. So when to drink and how to drink. Uh, traditionally, sake is best enjoyed during the appetizer phase of a meal. Um, or it might just be enjoyed throughout a tapas-style um, meal called izakaya. Um, so sometimes people also enjoy sipping sake with sushi. Um, just so it's, it's not like a kind of a heavy drinking session and it's not something to be have, had with a heavy meal. It's all just... Lots of small sips and nibbles and conversation. Um, so once everyone has been poured their sake, it's customary for everyone to raise their cups for a toast. Do you know the the way to say cheers in Japan? Oh, I don't know if I do. Mm, I don't think we covered it on there. No, I was, I was just toast. thinking, I think the only Podcast. sort of East Asian ones we did were Chin Chin. I, I think... At that point, I was like, that's enough. I don't know if I went to Japan. <laughs> um, in Japan, the traditional word for cheers is kanpai. 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 Yes. Uh, it's to be said whilst gently touching the sake cups together before taking your first sip. So you'll be devastated to know that there is no chinning of the sake. It's sips and sips No, and sips. you will be devastated <laughs> to know that. I won't. That's very much my approach. You will be devastated to know that. <laughs> <laughs> no chinning, just cheers and a sip. You can actually get sparkling sake. Um, can which has you? Been, yeah, which has been fermented in the bottle. So it's it's kind of like, you know, sake champagne um, or prosecco but actually even though normal sake is more alcoholic than wine the sparkling variety is only about five to eight percent so if it's it's become quite popular particularly among younger people who don't want to you know drink as much alcohol but it's like uh, their sort of local alternative to champagne or prosecco Um, so there you go sparkling varieties um, also, while I was looking into uh, sort of a d- newer developments in sake, I uh, found that they'd been into space. Of course, it's been into space. All drinks have been into space now. <laughs> um, so they uh, they produce 
um, space sake with um, yeast that had been sent into space. So they didn't send the whole, you know, the whole bottle, the whole brew, just the yeast. Uh, it went up on the Russian Soyuz rocket and spent eight days at the space station. And uh, so when it came back, it had a more refined fruity flavour that sparked the imagination of space. So um, who knows? Uh, <laughs> they've done they've done the undersea version as well, which we've seen a couple of times where it's submerged and because it it's gently um, rocked, you know, all the time. It's supposed to impart a different flavor. Well, it does impart a different flavor because it's been tested over and over again. But you can get a space version, you can get an undersea version. But here's the version I most want to try. Um, in Fukushima, there's a sake manufacturer um, who. <laughs> have started producing sake using music. So they think that this simulates the yeast activity, which influences the fermentation pattern. And so they decided to play Mozart to it. <laughs> um, the, the music's installed on each barrel for the 30-day fermentation stage. And they play specifically symphonies number 40 and 41 which they selected after comparing sake produced using various genres of music. And they play it at... So it's not just like this random one. They tested a variety and decided this one tasted the best. Uh, they play it at 75 to 120 decibels. And they believe that that stimulates the yeast and creates a mellow taste with reduced astringency and bitterness. So musical sake you can buy now. What do you think, I'm Mark? Still, official. I'm still stuck on stimulating the yeast. <laughs> um, I, I think I'm gonna finish our chat by talking about mythology. Rounded all up a bit of mythology. Rounded it all up there. But is there anything else you want to uh, offer before I get there? Uh, I've I've actually got some sad news. Oh, okay. Um, embrace. Hit me. Sad sake news. Um, so this is actually from a Japanese news website. Uh, so it's not here in the UK. Um, so sake has been the biggest loser in the alcohol market from the shift to drinking at home during the pandemic. Oh, right. Which makes sense given what you were saying earlier about the kind of laws on home brewing, etc., etc. And also the stuff I was saying about how it's generally a communal thing that you do with friends. Um, also, from what I've read as well, it just tends to just be more of a thing that you do in a restaurant as well. I also mentioned about um, you were saying that you were hoping that sales would um, jump up now because it wasn't doing very well. Mm. That is the plan. Um, so they obviously spoke to a lot of sake producers in this. Um, article as well um so one of the makers had said that it had experienced a boom of sorts in the past decade consumption has been on a fairly constant decline however and that was due to having it as we've heard before a bit of a cheap image uh sake makers especially small and medium-sized breweries have found an advantage in selling high-grade angel brews and other premium sake for higher prices when the market is shrinking but their efforts were upended by the pandemic and the plan coming out of the pandemic is to target a younger audience um 
they were going to try perhaps some low-priced, fragrant and fresh-tasting sake that can draw broad support. And they've also tried introducing um, different flavours, such as banana, Ooh. to get the youngsters in. So watch this space, guys. Sake is going to be big in Japan. Because <laughs> <laughs> previously unheard of. Uh, never associated <laughs> it uh, before then. <laughs> yeah, hopefully they have some development. I think it'd be nice as well, I was saying about the homebrewing thing. Because the thing is, you see how it transforms alcohol industries when homebrewing is allowed because people are much more experimental. Um, it, you know, it encourages people to want to start their own artisan versions of things. It pushes flavour profiles into new areas. It's just, it's always good, I think, to open stuff up. Well, yeah. My artisan Prosecco that I made so anyway mythology um (laughs) were you done can i move on i know you just needed a moment to think about my delicious prosecco yeah yeah i was just thinking of the um marketing strategy thought maybe we should send it to space or something um or send send it to the depths of the ocean and leave (laughs) leave it there let's send it to space I think it'll be the only brew they sent to space that could come back better. <laughs> I think let's just throw it in the canal. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's where it came from. <laughs> Essence of shopping trolley. Um, all right. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about some of the mythology. Um, so it's it's kind of first record is in the olding, old, olding, oldest existing record of Japanese history, which is the Kojiki. Um, which was completed in the year 712 uh, CE. And we have a hero called Suzano-o, um, who battles an eight-headed, eight-tailed serpent called Yamata no Orochi. And the story is essentially like they, they, come, to, uh, they come to this house and um, uh, Suzano-o meets a family and they had eight daughters but all but one have been eaten by this eight-tailed serpent and they're coming for the last one, his potential love interest. So what he does is he gets the family to brew up a big vat of sake and uh, leaves it, uh, puts it kind of strategically outside around the house and has these eight gates for the eight heads to come in. And of course, when the uh, serpent sees the sake, drinks it all and gets drunk and then the hero slays the serpent. So uh, that's kind of one of the earliest written references to it is in this uh, mythology story of it being used for good uh, to get an evil monster I drunk. Like I can relate to it. I can relate to that. <laughs> which, particularly which aspects of that? <laughs> um, just getting drunk. Getting carried away and being useless, yeah. <laughs> so you're, what you're saying is you're empathising very much with the eight-headed, eight-tailed serpent in this scenario. Yeah, not the humans. No, not at all. <laughs> Thanks for the clarity. Um, and then uh, there's some writing on the origin of sake. Uh, so it says, uh, Long ago, a great number of gods gathered along the banks of a river in this area and set up a kitchen to prepare food and drink. Then they made sake. And they spent the next 180 days drinking. Yes. Are you identifying again? Yeah. Yeah. Um, after that, they went their separate ways. 
Uh, the term used to describe this is Sakamizuki, and from that word, the area got its name of Saka. So that was a place called Saka, no longer called Saka, it's now Kosakaicho, um, near Izumo City. And its its place name has changed quite, quite a few times, but they when they describe it, they keep using the character, you know, as I said, um, uh, uh, the spelling, the character of Sake. And there's a small shrine in the area, Saka Shrine, which preserves that original place name. Um, and Saka is another way that Saka gets pronounced. Uh, the shrine also goes by the name of Matsura Shrine, which is the name used for shrines throughout the country that enshrine the deity of Sake Brewing. So there are shrines in other places, not just where it supposedly came from, um, that celebrate Sake Brewing. They're called Matsuo, Matsuo shrines. Uh, this deity, so in Japanese mythology, Inari Okami is the god of rice, sake, swordsmiths, and foxes. So the story here is that the fox spirits of Inari were entrusted to guard the Tori gates. Do you know those kind of like beautiful, famous, sort of usually like red framed gates that yeah. go through forests and stuff? Those are Tori gates. So they were protected by... Uh, the fox spirits and only the purest of spirits can pass through them and that story that that rather beautiful story has given rise to a brand called four fox sake four fox sake i'll just let the spelling sit with you on that yeah I very nearly bought that for this episode because it's in a very nice bottle. It's like a big um, chrome bottle. It looks lovely. It does look lovely for for such a stupid pun name. Um, it's actually a nice <laughs> a nice story in a good looking bottle of uh, booze. So uh, there you go. That was my grand finale for Fox Sake. I resisted making a pun right Fox up until Sake. the end there. I do you know what I was really patting us on the back for not going down that route. Yeah, I know. I almost, I almost opened with um, a terrible kind of similar joke to that, which now I've got to tell because I've said it. I thought um, you would have just named the podcast on on Spotify or wherever for for Hawksake. But tell us your shit joke. Oh, it's, I mean, we know the answer now. We know the punchline. But anyway, it's... um, (laughs) It's, uh, there's, a, there's a passage in the New Testament in the Apostles where Jesus is talking to John and Thomas and he says, um, you know, I'm, I'm getting really kind of bored of all this wine business, drinking wine, last supper, turning water into wine, you know, blah, 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 blah. Isn't there anything else other than grape wine that I could be using? Why don't you go to the market? And John and Thomas go to the market and uh, they're looking around at the various foodstuffs and uh, John says... Um, I've got no idea. What do you think, Thomas? And Thomas says, uh, we should get the rice for uh, Christ's sake. This is why I chose not to deliver that, because it's better written down. Mm. But now I've done it. I think you should have just done the glasses run dry bit. (laughs) And so our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to sake away. Cheers, everybody. So, 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 so,
Was that better? Sake away? I, I enjoy sake away. Yes, okay, I did. That's all I've got. That's all I've got. <laughs> <laughs> oh.